Go ahead and make your way to Acts chapter 20. My plan, we're going to preach through verse 16 this morning. Next week, we're going to finish Acts 20. Then we'll take a break through the month of December. And uh, I'm going to have both Bo and Dwayne get the opportunity to teach you guys. Bo will be on the 2nd. I'll teach the 9th. Dwayne will teach the 16th, and then I'll teach the week before Christmas. So that's the plan. So we're going to make our way through this wonderful chapter. I love Acts chapter 20. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again just for a time to be in your word, Lord. And your word is food for our soul. It's the encouragement. It's the nourishment we need. It is living and active. It is inspired divinely for rebuking, for encouraging, for building up and training up in righteousness. It's perfect, as it says of itself. So we pray that you use it in a powerful way to transform our minds, as Paul says in Romans 12, so that we might be conformed to the image of your Son through it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So now we're good. How's that? All right. So I want to ask you a question. I don't want you to answer it. I want you to think about this. When things are hard in your life, maybe life isn't going as you thought it would or as you thought it should. Does this challenge your understanding of who God is, of his goodness to you? Does it cause you to maybe start viewing that God is against you? Asking the question, God, why have you allowed this to happen to me? These are some of the deepest and perhaps most painful questions that we can and do ask through the experiences of life. And not one of us here is immune to those seasons. As much as we might try to insulate ourselves from it, it's guaranteed it will happen. There's a suffering that, that is common to mankind. That everyone will experience. Suffering of separation from loved ones at death. Physical sufferings. Mental, emotional sufferings. These are common to man and and they're common to Christians. We're not exempted from them. But the Christian also has another layer of suffering that we'll experience. We're promised. And it's the suffering for righteousness sake. Doing what's right. Knowing what you're doing is right. And still suffering for it. The Lord says that it's a blessed place to be, but so often when we're honest with ourselves in the moment, it doesn't feel so blessed. And we tend to question that truth. Adversity and the accompanying discouragement that frequently follows is a very real and serious issue, and it can threaten to derail our faith if we don't confront it. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon, who I love, He was called the Prince of Preachers. He preached to thousands of people weekly. And yet he would often lock himself in his office and weep after he preached. So depressed he became because he felt like he had just failed his Lord. John Bunyan, who you know well, struggled for years and years with depression. He was the well-known author of Pilgrim's Progress. He even wrote about that depression into that allegorical masterpiece. I want to share a piece of this with you. If you've read Pilgrim's Progress, you'll, you'll know this. Um, if you haven't, I would highly encourage you. I think it's the, the number one book every Christian should read outside of the scripture. Christian and hopeful have been on their journey toward the celestial city. They're on the seventh stage of their journey. They've been on it for some time. It's getting harder and harder. And they're growing tired from their trip. And they begin to wish for an easier way to the celestial kingdom. Already you can see the parallels to life, right? As you walk this life and endure that road, you begin to look over the fence for an easier way. That's what's happening to them. And so they notice a little meadow on their left, which was called Bypath Meadow. And they choose to take that detour. But as soon as they begin down that road, they're overcome by the night. And they're caught in a terribly violent storm. 
Finally, weary from their, their trek, they fall asleep under a great tree. But it's then that they're captured by giant despair who beats them cruelly and throws them into the dungeon of Doubting Castle. This castle is a very dark dungeon, Bunyan says. It's nasty and stinking to the spirit. But it is here that the two of them lay in misery from Wednesday morning till Saturday night without food, without drink, or without light to see. Giant despair, having reduced Christian and hopeful to this dreadful state, he then shows his true cruelty and malice by leaving a knife in their dungeon and then a rope and then a vial of poison in their cell which severely tempted Christian and Hopeful to end their life because they saw no way of escaping their enslavement to despair. The one thing that stopped them from taking their own life was the commandment, Thou shalt not kill. And so they resigned that they will forever continue to be tortured by giant despair. Now it's allegorical, but we can very well see ourselves in stages of life like that. The cruelty of our enemy meets us in our lowest place and tempts us to take our eyes off of God. In our passage, as I read it this week, it was one of those passages when I first read, I thought, okay, this is going to be hard to preach. And I've had that happen to me before until the one theme emerged out of it, encouraged, strengthened, comforted. Paul is winding up his missionary journeys. And from here on out in the book of Acts, we're really going to see Paul's farewells. That's really what, what this is the beginning of. In fact, I'll go to the next slide. All those regions that Paul had vi- visited, Macedonia, which included the cities of Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, the region of Achaia, which included Athens and Corinth, and then Asia Minor, Ephesus, Galatia, Phrygia, all those towns that he evangelized, established churches in, spent decades on missionary journeys. He's now going to begin in chapter 20 saying his final farewells to them. And it's important to look and understand the flow of Acts in light of that. Because these are Paul's last words to these people. He'd spent his life serving them. He'd spent his life building them up, giving them the treasure of the gospel. What would you tell someone if you knew it was the last time you'd see them? What would you spend your time doing with them? Would it be frivolous? Would it be maybe well-meaning and well-intentioned but powerless? What Paul does, because he knows he won't see them again, is encourage them in the Lord. And it's a beautiful picture. That's the pastoral heart. In chapter 20, verse 1, we see that Paul sent for the disciples at Ephesus. In verse 2, he goes through Macedonia. And then in verse 12, he ends up in Troas again. Let's read it. I want to read verse 1 through 16 together. And then we're going to look at these points and consider them out of our text. So Luke writes in chapter 20, verse 1, After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples. And after encouraging them, he said, Farewell. And departed for Macedonia. Just to remind you, if you weren't here last week, the riot he's talking about, the uproar that Luke mentions there, is the riot in Ephesus. Paul had been preaching in that town for two years. And when the Christians confessed their practices and repented, remember the account, it's what we preached on, and they brought their, their books and burned them in the sight of all, At that point, the town's seeing there's a dramatic change taking place in our people, and we're losing a lot of money because of it. Some of those idol makers stirred up a riot because they saw their prophet leaving with the Christians converting. Paul wanted to go rescue those Christians who were dragged in, caught up in it, but they they forbid him, they withheld him. Once the riot was finally displaced... Luke says, Paul sent for the disciples. Now it's not said explicitly, but that's the pastoral heart. Those converts that he'd made who were caught up and their lives were threatened, he was so concerned about that in the middle of the riot, he actually wanted to go to them. Now that's brave. 
He didn't count his life as anything of his own. He cared about them. They forbid him to do that. So once it ceased, he immediately sent for those disciples. That's the encouragement of a pastor. That's the shepherd's heart that you should always look for in a church. Shepherding is not easy work because you have to very frequently meet people at their lowest. And so the pastor's life can be very burdensome because you're carrying many people's burdens with you. Paul would say this to the Corinthian church, actually. He said, you know, besides all the things I've suffered in persecution and shipwrecks and stonings and beatings and imprisonments, all these things, I have daily upon me the concern for you and your well-being. That was, that was the one burden that followed him everywhere. Beatings would stop. Imprisonments came time to time. But the burden for the church was a daily thing for Paul. That's how it should be. That's the life of a shepherd. I don't take that lightly, but I don't shirk that duty either. I see that as part of the calling, and it's a joyous calling. Because with that, you get to see the Lord meet you in your greatest need. And you get to see some of the greatest victories that other people don't. So Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them... He says farewell. So this is farewell to Ephesus. And he departs for Macedonia. You remember Macedonia. The first time Paul came to Macedonia was when he was coming down to Troas. And the vision was given to him of a man standing there saying, come over here and help us. So concluding the Lord's calling us to Europe, modern day Europe, they went. And the church at Philippi was birthed. Verse 2 says this, When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he then came down to Greece. So again, Paul strengthens Ephesus, Asia Minor. He goes up to Macedonia and gives them what? Much encouragement. And not until that happens does he leave down to Greece. This is the first we know that he went to Greece, that we're told he went to Greece. In verse 3, it says this, that he spent three months in Greece. So we can assume a church was planted, disciples were made. We don't, we don't know for sure from this text. But it says this, when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Once again, the Jews are his antagonists. They're trying to kill him. And this time, Paul had remembered when he left Berea, He'd escaped the clutches of the Jews by getting on the ship and going down to Athens. Paul was intending to sail up to Syria, but a plot was made by the Jews to kill him while he was at sea. So he abandons that plan, and he returns through Macedonia to Syria instead of going by sea. Then we're given some details. So Peter the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him. And of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. So all those went by boat to Troas, while Paul made his way through Macedonia down by land to Troas. Verse 6, verse six says, But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, And then in five days we came to them at Troas where we stayed for seven days. Just a quick note about some of these men. Obviously you know who Timothy is. Gaius is mentioned. Gaius of Derby. Derby was one of the first towns Paul ever visited. In fact, one of the New Testament letters is written to Gaius. Can anybody name the letter? 3 John. I know that's a very well known letter by most 3 John was written to this man, Gaius. In fact, flip over to it really quick. It's at the very end of your scriptures, right before Jude and Revelation. A fun fact about New Testament history. The entire New Testament can be reconstructed. Even if every Bible was burned in the world, the entire New Testament minus 11 verses can be reconstructed. Because the early church fathers quoted it so profusely. And those 11 verses that they didn't quote, guess which letter it was from? 3 John. <laughs> but we see verse 1 of 3 John. The elder, this is John the apostle, to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. 
Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health, even as it goes well with your soul. So at some point, the beloved Apostle John came to know this man, Gaius, very well. He was a servant of the church, same as Tychicus. Tychicus was a faithful, trusted minister with Paul. Aristarchus is mentioned. All of these accompanied Paul as he made his way back through Macedonia okay, and Asia. But let's pick it up on verse 7. It says, On the first day of the week when we were gathered together, so they're in Troas again, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them intending to depart the next day. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. Now, I laugh inside because I, you guys endure me week in and week out. And I know I go long sometimes. But this is, this is fueling me to say, it's okay, Seth. I saw a testimony of a pastor who was asked to go to China and teach the underground church in China, which is just booming, as you've probably heard. And he gets there, and he preaches for two hours. It's the longest time he'd ever preached in his life. He finishes his sermon, and they say, man, that was good. What's next? They wanted him to keep going, so he preached another two hours. Man, that was good. What's next? This went on for over 12 hours. The church was so starving for the word of God. He would finish a book and they'd ask him to just keep going because they didn't have Bibles. And so he would start at Genesis, go through Genesis, teach them Genesis, and then he moved to Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And they just wanted more and more and more and more. I want to see that kind of revival in America. So that our hunger is enlarged and our capacity to take it in is filled like that. We'll work up to it. I'll provide you pillows to sit on. Eutychus sinks into a deep sleep as Paul talks still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms, he said... Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive, and were not a little comforted. But going ahead of the ship, we set sail for Azos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Azos, we took him on board and went to my Metellion. And sailing from there, we came to the following day opposite Chios. The next day we touched at Samos. And the day after that, we went to Miletus. For he had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia. For he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Paul originally, I think, wanted to make it to Jerusalem for the Passover. He missed that because the plans had to change when the threat from the Jews came. And so he was hastening to get to Jerusalem, at least to be there by Pentecost, 50 days afterward. So it gives you a little time frame. We're going to stop there. And next week, we're going to solely focus on 17 through the end of the chapter, which is Paul gets to Miletus and he calls the elders of Ephesus to Miletus to meet him because he still wanted to speak with them. He didn't want to spend the time at Ephesus. But we're going to save that. That's a tremendous passage of scripture. So we see the last statement of encouragement of comfort was when Eutychus fell asleep, fell out the window, died. Paul goes down and raises him from the dead. Now I'm not going to focus on that miracle, although it's quite awesome. I'm going to focus on the encouragement that it gave the church. That God was with them. Paul uses a different word here. Rather than encouragement, he says comfort. And the word comfort means just that. It's parakletos. One who is with you. Who walks beside you. 
And so the comfort that the church was given through the raising of Eutychus was that God is with us. They were encouraged. So this whole passage from every region Paul established churches in, the one theme that emerged out of everyone, Macedonia, Achaia, and Asia, was encouragement. As Paul made his way back to Jerusalem, his one concern was build them up, encourage them. Why? Because they are facing a lot. Almost every city Paul established a church in, they were threatened at the very least, if not outright persecuted. They were young babes in Christ, not established in the faith yet. And Paul had a constant burden to strengthen and establish them. And so as he's making his way back and saying his farewells, knowing this will be the last time he sees them, we're going to see next week that everywhere he went, the Spirit of God was telling Paul, you're going to be bound and you're going to be taken away. So Paul was hearing from the Lord, this is it. Say your farewells. So he made his words and his time count. So I'm going to talk the rest of this morning to you about the ministry of encouragement and how awesome a ministry this is and how needed a ministry this is. So often the church confuses biblical encouragement with a worldly kind of encouragement. So we're going to take our time to define some of the words connected with this. Proverbs 15.23 says this, To make an apt answer is a joy to a man, and a word in season, how good it is. Proverbs 25.11 says, A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. To the church at Thessalonica, one of the churches he said his farewells to, Here's what he wrote to him in 1 Thessalonians 4.18. He says, encourage one another with these words. In that context, he's talking about the rapture of the church, the coming of Christ, the second resurrection, so on. 1 Thessalonians 5.11-14, he says this, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. And then in 5.14, we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. There's several used, words used in connection with this idea of encouragement, which sometimes the word encouragement literally is logos, is how some translators translate it, which is a word. But there's more to simply speaking with biblical encouragement. It's what you speak, how you speak, but also the joining of your life with the one you're speaking to. All that comprises biblical encouragement. We saw in our passage here and in many, many, many other passages, the word comfort is used. Literally, the word comfort is a calling to one side. It's one who walks alongside another. It's one who speaks closely in consolation to another. In Acts 9.31, the disciples walked in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Now, Apply that definition to that verse. God has given us His Spirit. He is walking alongside of us. And we walk in His presence and comfort. Last night after worship practice, I got to speak with Casey and Susan about uh, my personal in, um, study. Uh, apart from this, that I, I've kind of given myself to study a certain man's ministry. Because it is still so powerful and fruitful, his works. And there's two doctrines that really transformed him after several years in the ministry. The first was that Christ was taken to heaven, but his spirit is really present with us. Now, there's a doctrine he knew. He could expound on it theologically. He could teach it and parse it up. But the reality of the existential reality that Christ is with us now transformed his ministry. Because we don't always put that on. That Christ is here with us now, church. He's here with us. The disciples walked in the comfort of who? The Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. If you want to turn there with me real quick. A reference is up on the screen for you. This is such a wonderful passage. 2 Corinthians 1. 
But it's one that I want to make sure I, I explain well. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 3 and 4, Paul writes this, Blessed be the God. Now remember, and keep, keep this in mind in context, the Corinthian church was part of Paul's farewell addresses. This was one of the churches on this tour of farewells that he visited. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. See, there's a truth that the church, I think, doesn't do a good job at explaining. We can say what this means doctrinally. We can tell you the definitions and the words and and the context of the Scripture, but you know what this verse says? This is an experiential verse. You know what I mean by that? God comforts you in your affliction. Why? So that you'll be able to comfort someone else when they're afflicted. That's not simply saying a head type of knowledge. That's not simply to be able to go to someone and say, hey, here's what's going on. Let me break it down for you. Comfort, and maybe you've been here if you've suffered tragedy, if you've suffered depression, if you've suffered emotional, whatever. When someone who hasn't really been where you're at tries to comfort you with mere words, it doesn't go very far sometimes, does it not? It comes across disconnected and cold, right? But when you speak with someone who's been through it, been there and done that, Their words are accompanied with something else. Experience. That's what this is talking about. See, what we do, church, and we're we're defrauding ourselves when we do this. We try to live our life so that we insulate ourselves from hardships. We live our life and we structure our day this way, if we're honest with ourselves. In every possible way, we try to insulate ourselves from suffering from hardships, from anguishes. We want to minimize that. But do you understand that when we do that, when we try to live the easiest possible life we can, we're actually defrauding something that God has for us. Comfort. God is the God of all comfort. And it's in those times of distress that He meets us. And He shares with us that secret counsel of of our heart. But He doesn't do it only for our sake. He does it so that we can help others. Try as we may to insulate ourselves from it. It won't happen. It will come. And the sad part is it's like starving yourself of food, knowing you're going to have to run a marathon, wishing you don't. But then the day of the marathon comes and you still got to go run it. And now you're like, dang, I should have eaten. It's just going to be that much harder. When we try to live a life of ease and comfort, we're defrauding ourselves. Of God meeting us where we're at. And we're not able to meet others where they're at. I want to read some other verses for you. 2 Corinthians 7, 6. Paul says that God comforts the downcast. And he does this with timely tokens of his love and faithfulness. In that context there. The comfort that Paul, Paul received from God was. God brought Titus to them. And Titus brought news of the Corinthians care and concern for Paul. Paul was worried about the churches as I said earlier. Titus came and said, hey, here's where they're at. Here's their concern for you. They want to know how you're doing. God met Paul in a timely manner. He was downcast. As we read from our passage during worship, he despaired of life itself. And then Titus shows up. Timing coincidence? No way. God met him there and gave him just what he needed. 2 Corinthians 13, 11, Paul ends that letter by telling the church to comfort one another. In Ephesians 6.22, Paul had sent Tychicus, who we read was accompanying him, back to the church at Ephesus to comfort their hearts. Do you see this network Paul's building? Paul goes to Ephesus to comfort them and encourage them. He moves beyond Ephesus and he's ministering elsewhere, but he sends Tychicus back to Ephesus. Why? To encourage them, to comfort them, to walk through it. 2 Thessalonians 2.16, God has given us eternal comfort And good hope through grace, Paul said. Why? 
so that we may also experience present comfort in order to establish us in every good work. Sometimes when you're laboring in life and for the Lord, you need some encouragement in it. Paul would tell the Galatian church, don't lose heart while doing good. For in due season you'll reap a reward. The fact is God has given us eternal comfort and good hope. But the reality also is we need to experience that presently. God knows that. I want you to take from this word though. That true comfort is not simply saying kind and gentle words to someone. And this is where the world doesn't get it. Very often. This is where the church doesn't get it very often. The word comfort has more of the idea of entering into someone's situation and walking with them. If you want to be a comforter, it's going to cost you. You're going to have to bear their burden with them. But how great is that needed, church? When your times of despair hit, what's the one thing you want? Someone present with you. That's true biblical comfort. It's then that your words of affirmation have power and effect in their life. We must learn, church, to walk with each other when we have victories and when we have failures. We must rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. We must share in each other's life because comfort, meaningful and impactful comfort, doesn't come from one disconnected from where I'm at. It comes from someone who's entered into where I'm at and then speaks to me. When someone sees that they're, you're willing to enter into my pain, how that changes the whole landscape from gray to blue. The next word we see connected with encouragement is the word strengthening. And it means simply to make strong or to strengthen The Bible says this, that God strengthens us. It's God primarily who strengthens us. Isaiah 41.10 is a great verse to go look up. But Philippians 4.13 basically says the same thing. I can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens me. So God is our primary first source of strength. But Paul also strengthened the churches. We read that in Acts 18.23 when Paul began back to Ephesus. As he passed through Asia Minor, what was he doing? Strengthening the churches. God strengthens us by His Spirit and His Word. Ephesians 3, 14-17. We're not going to turn there. But it's where Paul prays for the Ephesian church that the Spirit of God would strengthen them in their inner man so that Christ may dwell with them through faith. They needed strength. And even though their outer man is perishing, we need strength in our inner man. Psalm 119.28 says this, My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Where do you turn when you need strength? Do you turn to a person? Maybe to a habit? Maybe to go get a cup of coffee? Make it your habit to turn to his word when you need strength. God's grace also is his act of strengthening to us. 2 Timothy 2.1, Paul wrote in his final words to anyone, to Timothy, be strong, be strengthened, literally the Greek tense, in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And then Hebrews 13.9 says this, it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. It is God's grace that saves us, but it is also God's grace that empowers us to live for Him. It works two ways. It is through this process, as we looked at last week, when we confess and we crucify the flesh openly, and we're willing to take on the reproach of Christ, that we give way and break through to life and power and the Spirit of God working in us. That's when he begins to work mightily in us when we lay it down and we say, God, you have your way in me. He says, I will. So he strengthens us. The Bible also talks about building up, literally to build in a literal sense like a building. It's used very frequently, the building up of the church. 
It's also used figuratively to edify, spiritually profit or advance one an- someone else, another person. So scripturally, encouragement includes building up. We build each other up, Paul said, in love, Ephesians 4, uh, 4.16. But as an exposition of what that actually looked like, what does biblical kind of love look like? What does building each other up in biblical love look like? Go read 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient, love is kind. So on. That's what it is. That's the building up. It's the edifying. We also build one another up through wholesome words, according to Ephesians 4.29. Don't speak idle words. Don't speak profane words to one another, Paul says. Speak only things that will build someone up, not tear them down. And then in Romans 14 and 15, we're told to pursue things that make for mutual up building. I want to read some other verses to you. 1 Corinthians 14, 12. Paul says this, that the spiritual gifts were given to each member for the building up of the body of Christ and to the image of God. Ephesians 4, 12. Paul wrote that God gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. So often... The words we say, the actions we do, only tears each other down, even if we intend to build them up. Building up is actual work building up, not simply tearing something down. Sometimes it's necessary to tear something down before you can build up. But so often we don't get to that point, we simply tear each other down. For instance, in the book of Colossians, Paul said, I I was warning every man and instructing every man in Christ. The word warning literally in the Greek means that he's he's putting something back into joint that's out of place. See, he had to fix something before they were ready to be instructed. So sometimes that's true for building up. Any builder who works construction will tell you that. Sometimes you've got to fix everything before you start building. Christ warned warned us not to build on shaky foundations. So building up isn't simply saying positive things. Sometimes it means, hey, you need a brother to rebuke you to your face. But they do it in love. They do it in gentleness. And they follow it up with helpful things. That's where we fail so often. Even our attempts at encouragement, more often than not, simply end with the exposures of wrongdoings in another. Without any balance of right doings. But perhaps no right doings can be given. Even still, if that's true, you're to build them up out of love. Not out of a spirit of frustration, but out of a true concern for them. Building each other up. How needed this is today. Last encouragement includes correcting. Literally, the word correcting is a reformation. Literally, making straight. It also can mean a restoration to a right state. We're told in God's word that God disciplines us and it's a comfort. The great Psalm 23. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Hebrews 12, 7-13 talks about how every child of God endures discipline. Why? Because God's working peaceful fruit, righteous fruit in you. He disciplines us. Discipline and correction is a true expression of God's love. I put several passages there in Proverbs 13, 24. Let's turn to the book of Proverbs real quickly. In Proverbs 13, 24, we read, Whoever spares the rod hates his son. That's saying what we're saying in an antithesis. When you don't discipline as a parent your child, you're actually hating your child. But he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Proverbs 23, go over to that. 23, 13 through 14. Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. If you strike him with the rod, you will save his soul 
from Sheol. Hebrews 12, 5-7 gives us the same thing. Don't grow weary or resist the discipline of God because God disciplines everyone He loves. When we start thinking in those terms that acts of discipline, whether it's us to our children or God to us, is an act of love, it transforms the way you think. But it also transforms the situations you're in and how you see it. Why has God got me in these difficult situations? Maybe he's teaching me because he loves me and sees something that needs to be remedied in my life. We're told in 2 Timothy 3.16 that God's word was given for this very purpose in part. So that we might train, be trained up in righteousness. Proverbs 19.18 says, Discipline your son for there is hope. There's hope. Hebrews also says the same thing. If you're not being disciplined at some point in your life by the Lord, you're not his child. Because God does and will discipline every child whom he receives. Every single one of us falls short. Every single one of us need correction. And it is a comfort when God corrects me. Why? Because I know I'm his. That rod and staff is his communication to me that yes, you're in error, but yes, you're my child. And I'm helping you. We see from all this that there's a sort of private and a public type of encouragement that happens. The private encouragement is first the Lord's encouragement to you as his child. When you worship and when you fellowship with him. A good example of this is in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. Where Paul talks about the thorn in the flesh that was given to him. And he prayed privately. This is Paul interacting with the Lord, pleading with the Lord privately. Saying, God, remove it. God says, no. I'm going to let that remain in your life. Because you need to learn, Paul, that grace is perfected in weakness. That was a lesson Paul learned privately. The encouragement that the Lord gave. Hey, why is this thing not being removed out of my life? Why is this trial not being taken? Because God's teaching me a greater lesson. His grace perfected in this weakness. Paul ended up sharing that publicly, but it was a private transaction, a private encouragement the Lord gave him. And hopefully you have some of those as well. Hopefully there's been seasons of your life where you're wrestling with God, you're wrestling with the flesh, and God gives you a word. You see it, it jumps off the page, and it speaks to your heart immediately, and you know the Lord's met me. The Lord said something to me. This is what I needed. There's private encouragement, and it always begins with that. But it doesn't end with that, church. And so often, this is where I want to challenge us. There's also a public ministry of encouragement that the church must engage in. Just as the Lord unites himself by his spirit to us and walks through every situation with us, so the church is to unite with each other and walk through every situation with each other. There's the public ministry of encouragement. We just got done reading it, example after example of after example, Paul going to the church is what? Encouraging, strengthening, comforting, challenging, correcting. We must be engaged in this kind of work. It's the church's particip- participation in the work of encouragement that causes us to be transformed. I didn't say this last week. I didn't take the time to, to develop this, but I'll say it quickly here. When the church begins to confess sin, like we saw at Ephesus... When we're coming clean and we're more concerned about what God thinks than what other people think, you know what it opens up a door to? It opens up a door for the church to respond to that individual with grace, with mercy, with truth, with compassion. You see, when we're not confessing sin, when we're not dealing with these issues in our life, and we're just trying to hide it and ball it up and pretend like we're all okay, it's prohibiting the church from being who the church should be to you. It's not giving us that opportunity to get involved in your life and help. Which is what we're called to do. Paul said to the church of Thessalonica, encourage one another. Comfort one another. Walk alongside each other. There's a public and a private ministry of encouragement. It's exactly what the body of Christ is to be about. Our walk with God includes both. So there's the application Whose life are you involved in right now to encourage them? 
Whose life are you involved in to walk with them? If you're not, plug in with someone and be used by God. And what you'll find is as you seek to encourage someone else, you'll actually be the one receiving encouragement as well. The Lord will be ministering to you privately, and so will that individual that you seek to encourage. As I said earlier, so, so often we give misguided encouragement. Sometimes we point people, subjects, to the wrong object. Job said to his friends who sought to encourage him, miserable comforters are you all. <laughs> We've had people like that. Sometimes it's because we're off, not them. What we need to learn is how to point someone to the right object for comfort. There's a story of a patient who was stopped by a doctor as this patient ran out the hospital and is operating in his uh, surgical gowns. So the doctor stopped this patient running and he asked, Do you mind me asking why you're running and what you're running from? The man said, It's because of what the nurse said as he was in the operating room. And what did the nurse say, the doctor asked? Well, she said, Be brave. An appendectomy is quite simple. The doctor said, well, what's wrong with that? That should be a comfort to you. It is quite simple. To which the patient said, the nurse wasn't talking to me. She was talking to the doctor. (laughs) Misguided encouragement can have tremendous effect. Sometimes we lack practical wisdom and experience to encourage somebody. And that's what we get out of 2 Corinthians chapter 1. When we are not willing to suffer and we just insulate our lives to live an easy life, guess what? You're going to be the person who has the hardest time comforting someone because your life has been a life of ease. And someone else has had it very difficult. It's very hard for you to comfort that person when they're looking at you in your tower. Right? We must be willing to go to the front lines, get in the trenches, in the yuck and the muck of life, And then someone will start receiving new words. That's what a true comforter is. That's what the Holy Spirit does for us. Guys, our lives are messy, yet He is with us. He walks with us. The church is to be that visible manifestation that the Spirit is privately. And sometimes the subject is not in a position... To be comforted. And I find this often as a pastor when I go to someone who's just lost a loved one. Sometimes I don't say a word. Because they're not in a state where they can actually receive comfort yet. You just need to be there. Bide your time. And in due season and right timing. You'll be used by the Lord. He has to bring them and work them into a position. To be able to receive it. Sometimes they're in a position because of sin. Where they won't hear you. Their hearts are hard. Pray for them. Tell them the truth in love and then leave it alone. Let the Lord work conviction in their life. You don't have to be the hammer that breaks them to pieces. God will do that. You be there to help build them back up. A few questions. How, how hard Paul worked at encouraging the disciples? And at what personal cost he made that happen? Did you think about that? Paul spent his life. He was giving him his life away. Why? To encourage them. To build them up. That's literally what he spent his life doing. Some would say that's a life wasted. No. That's a life well lived. I want to read this quote from Alexander McLaren. It's from a sermon he gave called A Fight with Depression. It was on Psalm 43.5. Said Christian hope comes to no man without his definitely endeavoring after it. There is a great lack amongst all Christian people of realizing that it is as much their duty to cultivate the hope of the Christian as it is their duty to cultivate any other characteristic of the Christian life. What McLaren is saying is this we have a duty one to another to help cultivate hope in each other's life. It's a duty to do that. Because This isn't something that just happens in you. A trial will come. It will expose the shallowness or weakness of our faith. And that's when we start building as Christian people. That's that's not when we run from each other. That's when we run to each other for this purpose. 
We must cultivate this in each other. So the question for you, would you be willing to spend and be spent for the sake of encouragement and comfort to someone else? Would you give up your plans? If someone called you and said, hey, I'm struggling, can you come here? Dang, you know, I, I have some plans to go eat lunch with so-and-so. Right, you know, this is my, man, this is the time I really, I want to watch the football game. Hmm. Those idols are keeping us from being who we should be as the church. Because our time, our affection is given to so many other things. While people in the church, people we love, who will spend eternity with, are struggling. Would you be willing to spend and be spent for strengthening and establishing the disciples? I didn't end Bunyan's illustration in Pilgrim's Progress. I'm going to end that for you. Because it doesn't end with Christian and hopeful in the dungeon of despair. Though they spent some time Wednesday through Saturday, early on Sunday morning, Christian suddenly sat up in his prison, in that prison cell of giant despair. And he was amazed. He said to himself, Why, what a fool I've been to lie here in this dungeon of despair when I can easily walk out at liberty. I have a key in my pocket called promise that will, I'm persuaded, open any lock in Doubting Castle. Then Hopeful said to Christian, That is good news, brother. Take it out of your pocket and try. Then Christian pulled the key of promise out of his pocket and put it into the keyhole of the dungeon door. And as he did, the bolt gave way and the door flew open with ease and Christian and Hopeful walked out of Doubting Castle and from the grip of giant despair. He does that privately for us and he does that publicly through the church. Church lead each other to the truth, to the promise of God, that we might be true overcomers. I want you to take some time and go before the Lord as we bring the worship team up. And just ask the Lord to start changing you. Be someone who is an encourager. And that word is a deep word biblically. But understand that that's going to cost you. Are you willing to? To pay the price. There's incredible promise. There's incredible fruit. You'll have incredible eternal dividends. But that's what you want to be about. I want you to go before the Lord.